0: This week we're going to resume our study in Ephesians, so please turn there to Ephesians chapter 3. And before we jump back into our study, I thought I'd make a few points, or remind us of some key points of Ephesians. Paul spent about two years with the saints in Ephesus. If you remember in the book of Acts, if you ever did your homework, you can read how he spent a long time there. Actually... Probably one of the longest times he spent anywhere was in Ephesus. And because he spent so much time there with the saints in Ephesus, they were established in grace. He spent a lot of time teaching the gospel, showing Christ from the Old Testament, showing how justification is by grace, not by works. And the church was founded and established in grace. And so it comes through in the epistle itself. You notice that in Ephesians, unlike other epistles, Paul isn't arguing for justification by faith, like he is in Galatians, or in Romans, or in even 2 Corinthians, and other places. He's not contending for grace, so he's able to explain and talk about grace. Instead of defending grace, he has freedom to talk about grace. And so this letter is characterized by a freeness of Paul's thought. He's got freedom of thought. He's not restricted because they're already established in grace. So we find in this letter, he talks about deep things. He talks about the things in heaven that goes on behind the scenes. So it's a very special letter. In Ephesians, another thing I'll mention, that I've mentioned before, that this expression in the heavenlies, or in the heavenly places, is used five times throughout the epistle in different chapters. And that word, in the heavenlies, helps us understand the context, that we're seeing things from Heaven's perspective in Ephesians, which is really the theme of Ephesians, just seeing from Heaven's perspective. So in Colossians, when Paul says, set your mind on things above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God and your life is hidden with Christ and God, it sounds like Ephesians. If you want to do that, then we can go to the book of Ephesians and read it. Set your mind on things above can mean dwell on the things that Ephesians talks about because it's all about the things above. It's been called, the letter to the Ephesians has been called the Queen of the Epistles. One person said that. Um, It's also been called Paul's Most Mature Writings. Of all his writings, it's the most mature. And the Grand Canyon of Scripture. So, just because it's so weighty and rich. Because he's not arguing about some little church issue. Like, hey, you know, you're not supposed to be having your mother's wife, you know, in First Corinthians. Or, no, it's, don't listen to the Judaizers. That's not an issue with these guys. So, in 3, as we start chapter 3, I'll just mention that as we've been having this tour of heaven, setting our mind on things above, Paul has paused twice already. And the first time he paused, he paused to pray, which is in chapter 1, verse 15. He prays there. And he pauses the Torah a second time in chapter 2 to make a declaration in verse 8, chapter 2. And now in chapter 3, he's about to pause again. So he pauses once again at the beginning of chapter 3, as you'll see when we read. He pauses to pray once again. So after he's just talked to us about God building this temple at the end of chapter 2, the materials he's using is people, Jews and Gentiles, and he's building a place of worship and a place that he can dwell. He's going to pause to pray, but as is the style of Paul, he gets sidetracked for about 12 verses, and then he starts praying. So he pauses to pray, and then he gets sidetracked for 12 verses, which is what we're going to look at essentially this morning is these 12 verses, where he gets sidetracked into a glorious sidetrack, and it's a really weighty sidetrack. Paul talks about God's purpose for the ages. So, let's read it together. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, we'll read to verse 13. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation... He made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, whereby when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister According to the gift of the grace of God, given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Lord, I just ask that you would open up this passage to us this morning and help us to see nothing more than what you have written here, Lord, and what you desire for us to know from this text. Help us to understand this weighty passage, Lord, which speaks of things that are so far above our understanding. And I thank you for it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mystery. This is the theme of this sidetrack. Mystery. When I was... Here's a little bit of information about me when I was younger. When I was younger, I was really fascinated by this idea of mystery. It fascinated me. And my friend and I, we were going to be detectives when we grew up. That was our goal in life. (laughs) That was what I wanted to do when I was younger. I wanted to be a detective. But I wasn't waiting until I grew up. He and I started a detective agency... We had our fingerprinting kit, we had the wind up cameras, we had the magnifying glass, and uh, a briefcase, like my grandfather's briefcase that looked real official, and we filled it with like files and things, and uh, my friend and I would mail to, we'd mail to each other, we'd write and mail to each other these fictional mysteries that we'd just try to, you know, figure out for fun. So, you know, I'd get it in the mail his thing, I'd open it up, I'd read it, and I'd try to work it out and it was a lot of fun. I recommend it. And uh I, I don't know, it was always a fascinating thing, mystery. And uh we actually had a real case once. At school one of our students uh in our in the fourth grade, one of the students lost his shoes. So we had the case of the missing shoes and we uh, I can't remember if we cracked it or not, but we took a lot of pictures and interviewed people and stuff, but <laughs> um I just remember there's a thrill, there was like a thrill to the mystery, there's the challenge of trying to discover the unknown and like put clues together and the satisfaction of discovering the answer. I didn't actually read much mystery novels or anything like that. I didn't read any actually, but I probably would have liked them if I had read them. There's something about a mystery that's fascinating. It's something that's unknown. It it lures you in and there's a challenge and there's a satisfaction about it when you find it. One thing, though, we need to ask is, what is the meaning of mystery here in this passage? So when we think about a mystery, we do think about something that's unknown, but it can also be taken as something else. It can be taken as something that's secret. It's similar, but a little different. It can be secret, a secret, or it can be something that's unknown. Like unknown, for instance, is what we're more familiar with when we use the word mystery today. We might say, Is there such thing as a Loch Ness Monster? You might ask that question. And someone might answer and say, nobody knows. It's a mystery. It's a mystery because nobody knows. We haven't discovered the answer, therefore it's a mystery. Or someone might ask, is there life on other planets? And someone might answer, well, we don't know, so it's a a mystery. Nobody knows. So you could use the word mystery in that way as something that nobody knows and it's still uncovered and we don't know what the real answer is. Or, mystery can be something that's secret. Somebody knows, and somebody doesn't want anyone else to know. Somebody conceals information. And actually, that's the way that we should understand mystery when we read it in the Bible. Because the word in the Greek is mysterion, where we get the word mystery in English. But in the Greek world, the ancient Greek world, it wasn't the idea of unknown. It was the idea of secret. So actually, you can better translate it secret as you read it as you read this passage you could better translate this word mystery secret because when you read it mystery we have our own sort of notions of what that is better to translate it secret and actually some translations do translate it particularly the those uh, literal translations like young's this word mysterion in the greek it was all about this idea of concealing have you ever heard of these things these these cults in the old days these pagan religions called mystery religions. Have you ever heard of that before? Well, back in the day, there was mystery religions. And that sounds kind of mystical when we think of the word mystery in our sense. But what it meant is it's a religion of secrecy, meaning that whatever they did or said in their meetings, they didn't tell others. It was secret. So they had their special little meetings, but nobody knew what they did in those meetings. And nobody knew what they said, or really what they believed. Only the initiated did. But this was the word mysterion that they used. And this was the idea. And actually today, in Utah, we actually have an example of a mystery religion. A religion that doesn't tell you what goes on inside. Right? They tell you some things, but there's a, you know, the temple and they don't tell you what goes on in there. That's, that's kind of the idea of what a mystery religion is. The idea of concealing. So Paul here, he says mystery three times, actually, in this passage. In uh, verse 3, how it says, How that by revelation he made known, God made known unto me the mystery. In verse 4, Whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And also in verse 9, To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Now some Bibles, the ESV and the NIV, will put the word a fourth time, in verse 6 at the beginning, but actually that's an addition, just to help you understand the flow of thought, but it's actually not there. So, does this mean, first of all, two questions. What is the mystery we're going to look at today? Or what is the secret? And does this mean that Christianity is a mystery religion? If he's now talking about secrets and mystery, does that mean that Christianity is a secret religion where we keep things back from people? Is this what he's getting at? So first of all, let me say this. Christianity is not a secret religion or a mystery religion. Notice in verse 9, Paul wants all men to see what the mystery is, right? He wants everybody to see. God's commissioned him to preach and to make everybody know what is the truth about Jesus. And if you look at the book of Acts, you see Paul and you see what the Christians were about. They were about taking the gospel and preaching it to all creatures and all men. So there's nothing that you and I believe, and I think this is important to say here in Utah, but there's nothing that you and I believe that we can keep secret from anyone, that we have to keep hidden from anybody. Whatever we have understood from God, God actually wants us to go and tell others about it. There's nothing that we do here at All Saints that we can't tell outside here, right? We don't have any secret rituals, and we don't have any secret beliefs either. It's all to be told. Jesus even said, whatever I tell you in the darkness that speak in the light. And whatever I tell you in the ear, that proclaim from the housetops. You remember that? So whatever I tell you in secret, you proclaim it on the rooftops. So there's nothing secret there from man to man, from us to the world. But on the other hand, we can say that Christianity is a divine mystery religion. We could say that it's a divine mystery religion. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this that though there's nothing that I should or can hide or want to hide from the world, that doesn't mean that God doesn't conceal things from man. So there's no secret from man to man, but there is secret from God to man. You understand? This is what it explicitly says here in our passage. Notice in chapter 3, verse 5, it says that the mystery which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of man as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So God actually has a secret that he didn't make known in other ages, but now he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And then in verse Nine. Notice how explicit it is here. It says, the mystery, I'm jumping into the middle of the verse, the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hidden in God. Interesting. So it says here that the mystery or the secret was hidden in God from the beginning of the world. So God has a secret that he's kept hidden, but now... He's revealing the secret. And it says He's revealing the secret. Is He revealing the secret so that those whom He reveals it to should keep it concealed? Not at all. He reveals the secret to a few that they might proclaim it to all. So here's the order. God reveals it to some who reveal it to all, according to our text here. Now, there's an Old Testament verse let's go to that is along these lines because this isn't just original to what Paul's saying here. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 29. So we look at God as a God who has a secret. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. It says this. The secret... Now, notice in some Bibles, there's italicized words here. It says, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. If you take the italics out, it sounds like this. The secret unto the Lord our God, or is his. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So here it even says, Whatever is secret, it's God's. But whatever he reveals to us, it's ours and our children's. Forever. Meaning, that which is secret is his, and who can know it? Like Paul says in some places, he says, who knows the mind of the Lord and his counsel, and who has instructed him? God knows what he's doing. He's doing what he's going to do. And who knows it? But when he reveals it, then it's ours. And that which is revealed, it's for not only me, but for my children also, or for all, as Paul reveals in ephesians three it 's for everyone when it 's revealed it 's for us and there 's a new testament verse i 'd like us to go to real quick Romans sixteen along these lines also becomes a bit more clear now romans sixteen twenty five to twenty six Notice what it says here about secret. Starting in verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the everlasting God, made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. What was hidden is now made manifest by the Scriptures for all nations, for everyone to know. And it's revealed by the Scriptures. I don't know if we've really noticed this, but sometimes I know that it's easy for us to think about God as a God who doesn't keep secrets, as a God who would just be proclaiming everything that he has to say to everybody at all times. But we learn in the Bible that God actually keeps secrets and he has purposes and timings when he reveals things to man. We will see in Ephesians 3, Paul says that God has a purpose for these timings and these ages and why he reveals things. But notice one more thing about the secret. Some believers believe that, some Christians believe that a a mystery, as the Bible says, is something that was not in the Old Testament. And is a new thing that was revealed in the New Testament. So some Christians see this and they go, "Okay, a mystery." And what they think is, this is something that God has never spoken about before, never revealed before. And all of a sudden, in the New Testament, He brings this new thing to the table. And there's a lot of Christians that believe that way, but that is not right. That's an erroneous thought because notice here it says that it's made known by the Scriptures. And the idea of a mystery in the Bible is something that God has spoken in the Old Testament in riddles. Or he's spoken it in parables. Or he's spoken it in a way that's not clear until finally in the New Testament, the revelation comes of what he was talking about in the Old Testament. So a mystery isn't something that God has never spoken before. But it's something that he spoke in riddles. And then in the New Testament, it's come to light. And you see it in hindsight, as a matter of fact. So, let me just say that it's not something new, but it's something old that's now revealed. Something that was hidden before in words that's now revealed. For instance, do you remember in Luke 24, when Jesus speaks to his disciples, he opens to them the scriptures. Do you remember that? One more verse, Luke 24, before we go back to Ephesians. Luke chapter 24, verse 44 to 48. And you'll see here. So this is Christ after he's risen from the dead. And his disciples still don't know what's going on. His disciples are still confused about his death and his resurrection. Actually, beforehand, he's walking with these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they said, well, we had hoped he was the Messiah. They still didn't even know. They still had their doubts. They thought he died and that was the end of their hope. But in verse 44, Jesus says this. He said unto them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then he opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, and this sounds a lot like Romans, what we just read. Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. So the mystery is suddenly revealed to them right there. Oh, now I get it. The scriptures that prophesied of this, I didn't understand that before, but now that you've opened it to me, now that you've revealed it to me, now that I see it revealed in you, I understand this mystery that from the beginning was declared but it was hidden and now all of a sudden it's open. So God does that. He speaks in a riddle so that it requires revelation to understand what he's saying. Imagine I were to give a riddle. There's a riddle I often give about these uh, four helmets. But if I gave a riddle and everyone's like, oh, what is the answer? What is the answer? Well, it's, it's contained in the riddle. The answer's in there. Everything that you need is in that. But our own weakness keeps us from understanding it, doesn't it? I mean, that's just a riddle. Someone who's real smart can get it. Other people, they need someone. Okay, I give up. Please tell me what what the answer is right and this is the way it is God in the Old Testament spoke in such a way that you could see it you could see it but because of the weakness and the pride of man they couldn't see it and it requires revelation and this is what Jesus did too and remember when he said that to you I reveal the mysteries of the kingdom of God he said to the disciples but to everyone else I speak in parables so that they can't see he's hiding something He's got a secret, although he's telling them in parables. And as we read that, we can get real confused because we can think, my goodness, I understand the parables. It's not rocket science. But the reason why we understand it is because we know Jesus. And when you know Jesus, then the parables make sense. And the parables is just like the Old Testament scriptures and the prophets. When you know Jesus, then the prophecies all make sense and fit into place. It's when you don't know Jesus that you can't understand the prophets. Because sometimes we think, well, why don't other people see how clear it is in Scripture? I mean, we see Jesus in the Old Testament; we see him very clearly, and other people can't. And we, sh- I just, I just want to say this: we shouldn't underestimate the difficulty of seeing Christ in the Old Testament until you know Christ. It's very difficult to see him there. Sometimes, as Christians, we can just kind of feel like slapping somebody. But the reality is, until you know Christ, until you have the revelation of who he is that he is the Messiah, it's near to impossible to see Christ in the Old Testament. Not because he's not there, but because of our own weakness and our own pride from seeing him. So Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament. He's the key to understanding the parables. Know him, you know it all. But, knowing him is a whole nother issue, isn't it? So it's in hindsight that we see. It's in hindsight. Having seen Jesus, we see how he fits into all the Old Testament. So a riddle is a mystery is not something new, but something that is spoken of God before in riddles, not understood without the Spirit's revelation of Christ and of the Scriptures. Okay, back to Ephesians 3. Paul says this, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. What's the occasion of his sidetrack? Well, he says this, he says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. What he's been talking about in chapter 2 is connected to what he talks about in chapter 3. It's the mystery, the riddle, or the secret, that the Jews and the Gentiles will be one, together, fellow heirs. And look in verse 6. This is what he explicitly says this mystery is that he's talking about. That the Gentiles should be heirs together together with the Jews together in the same body with the Jews and together partakers of the promise in Christ by the gospel that is the mystery that he's got in view here that doesn't mean this is the only mystery there is there's lots of other mysteries in the Bible this is just one he's talking about right here and it ultimately fits into the large overall mystery of Jesus but this is the mystery he's saying God from the very foundation of the world had this plan. That nobody knew, although he spoke about it in the in the prophets, nobody knew what he was going to do. They knew he was going to save mankind. I mean, they knew some things. They just didn't know how he was going to do it. They didn't know what it was going to look like. They didn't know that the Jews and the Gentiles would ultimately end up being fellow heirs together in one body and partaking of that promise. And this is so radical. I think this is another thing as Christians in the 21st century that we brush over quickly. Oh yeah, we know Jews and Gentiles, there's no difference between them, right? It's so simple. I mean, what's the big deal? But in Paul's day, that was such a big deal. It was such a huge deal to say that the Jews and the Gentiles would be one. And why does he go into this sidetrack? Because he just said, I'm a prisoner of Jesus for you Gentiles. Do you know why he was in prison? Remember, this is after he spent time at Ephesus. This is his final imprisonment. This is after he went to Jerusalem. He went to Jerusalem, he went to the temple. They thought he brought in a Gentile into the temple. They were going to rip him to shreds. And then the Romans saved him. And then he wanted to say something, and the Romans let him speak. Acts 22, you can read this. He now has the opportunity to speak to his Jewish kinsmen in Jerusalem. And there's a crowd there, and he begins talking to them in Hebrew. And he starts to share with them about the revelation of Jesus that he had. And you know that they listened to him without making a sound for a long time. When he talked about how he used to persecute the Christians. And then he said, Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. I was going to put Christians in jail. Jesus appeared to me and he showed me he was the Messiah. They didn't go up in arms. When did they go up in arms? When he said, when Jesus said, go to the Gentiles. They said, this man is not fit to live. This guy is destroying the very fabric of our lives, our religion, our law, our lifestyle. Paul, and this Jesus he preaches, is dangerous stuff. He's not fit to live. And that's why he says, I'm the prisoner prisoner for you Gentiles. The reason I'm in prison is because of this mystery that was revealed to me. They didn't know in the ages before, but now it's revealed. It's been revealed. I see it in the scriptures now. It's revealed to me by God. But this is why I'm in prison. He says in verse 3, That God made known to him, and he wrote about it before in a few words. That's the last chapter. Uh, In chapter 2, he was already talking about that, wasn't he? So basically, the reason why Paul was in in prison was because of what we just read in chapter 2 about the Gentiles and the Jews being one in Christ, having equal access to God through Jesus Christ, which is a statement of grace. It's a statement that no one approaches God based upon who they are or what they do you approach God through Christ and Christ alone. And because we approach God through Christ and not by what we do and not by who we are, therefore it's open to Jew and Gentile. So it's a statement of grace. Now, Paul, in verse 7, he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to make all men see what is the, this is better translated, the arrangement. The arrangement of the mystery, of the secret, which from the beginning of the world has been hidden God who created all things by Christ Jesus. Can you imagine Paul? Here he's just marveling that God would give him this grace. Paul's not in any way saying, I'm the one who figured this out. I'm the one who decided for Christ. I'm the one who said that I will take this mystery to the ends of the earth. No, he's totally just saying, he's marveling that God would even do this. And considering the, the magnificent scope of this mystery that was hid from the beginning of the world, God created the world because of this, because of Jesus. And Paul, it was revealed to him by grace. It was by God's working that he was even able to be an effective minister for him. And that's why he's like, I'm the least of all saints. There's no sense here that Paul's saying that he's anything special at all. Now, often when we get gifts, we think, oh, that must mean I'm something special, right? (sighs) Because like, no, this gift outweighs any gift that any of us probably could ever have. I don't think many people can claim this. Our knowledge of things, if we're honest, has come because the apostles preached Christ, Right? The apostles, it says earlier, it says, the mystery is revealed to the apostles and the prophets, and they preached it to the world. And we heard because we read, say, Ephesians, or we read Romans, or we read the Gospels, right? How many of you just figured out Jesus was the Messiah without the Bible? Or without someone sharing to you the scriptures? Anybody? You know? But Paul got this special thing, and the apostles as well. Jesus himself opened to them the scriptures. And Paul even said, no man taught me. Now he wasn't saying that that's how it has to be for everyone. But he's just saying that's how it was for me. God revealed this to me and to the apostles to preach it into all the nations. So he got a, he has a gift that outweighs any gift that we could ever have and yet he just completely deflects the glory to God and says he's not special. In fact, he says I'm the opposite of special. I deserve the opposite of this. I'm the least of all saints. What an attitude to have. This is grace working in this man's life. When grace works in our lives, we will also have that same attitude. When grace does its work, its deep work in us, we'll say, I'm the least of all saints. And whatever gift I have, it just makes me feel even lower because I don't deserve anything but the opposite of this. As long as we're boasting in our gifts and our privileges because of something in us, we're not understanding God's grace as Paul here understood it. Now in verse 10, he says this amazing thing that we can just marvel at together this morning. He says, to the intent, the intention of God hiding this mystery, revealing it only after so long at the right time, the intent that now, that word is special, it is important, that now, at this time, now that it's revealed, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church or that the church might make known to the principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God how wise God is and his wisdom isn't just singular it's manifold the amazing multi-form wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose or better translated the purpose of the ages which he worked in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom We have boldness and access with confidence by faith of him. Let's just marvel at that for just a minute. Because even if we didn't even know what that meant in verse 10, what does it mean that the principalities and the powers look at the church and glorify God for his wisdom? Even if we didn't know what that meant, we could just read that and marvel. Whatever it means, when the principalities and the powers look at the church, they glorify God for his wisdom. Wow. That means when the principalities and powers look at Miriam, or when it looks at Jacob, or when it looks at Carolyn, or it looks at Deanna, they are glorifying God for his wisdom. Wow. You and I are a part of this. This heavenly thing. What is God's intention? It's found in the heavenlies, and it is beyond us. What is he doing? He's showing off his wisdom by this church, and by this plan. Now there's different speculations about what that means if we are to explore it. Some people might say, well, it means that the angelic beings... Remember it said angels desire to look into these things. The angelic beings, whether they be good or bad, they look at the church and they marvel because the church is so amazingly holy. I mean, look at those guys. Those guys are dynamite. Spiritually, they're like on top of things. But... I don't think that's what it's saying. I don't think that the principalities and powers look at us and marvel about something in us. Because I think that if God was showing us off to the angels, He might be embarrassed. If He was showing off something about us. Let me just show <laughs> off Eli for a second. Oh my. You know. <laughs> I don't think that's what God is showing off. Not how amazing we are. That's the point. He's not showing off how amazing we are. That God has taken a church and made them so amazing. I don't believe that's what it's saying. What I believe it's saying is he's showing off the wisdom of his grace. Because it specifically says the wisdom, but the wisdom of his plan, the wisdom of his mystery, the wisdom of his grace in this church. And I think what that means is the angels and these principalities, they didn't conceive it. They didn't conceive of this. They might have thought grace was unheard of. You see, when Jesus came and incarnated the demons knew who he was, right? They said, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And we know, we've heard, we understand God is going to somehow crush our head. We understand that he's going to change things. Because right now we rule. We rule. But somehow God is going to change that. But we don't know how he's going to do that. We know who you are. You're the Holy One. Are you come to destroy us? Question mark. That's what they ask. We don't know what you're doing, but are you here to destroy us? That's what they thought. The principalities thought, well, God is probably just going to come in power one day and destroy every every demon there is and throw us into hell. I mean he's going to throw us into the abyss. That's what's going to happen. And he'll probably but you know what's going to happen? He's going to take every person down with him with us because we've got them. Yeah, and he'll just start afresh. He'll start new. They couldn't conceive of grace. Another parallel verse is 1 Corinthians 2. It says that the princes of this age didn't no, otherwise they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. They didn't know what? The wisdom of God in Christ. That's specifically what they didn't know. It says that the wisdom of this world comes to nothing, and they didn't know the wisdom of God, his grace in Jesus Christ. They had no conception. Do you think that demons think about grace and know what that is? We don't. And so what, I, what I'm thinking, I'm speculating here, so don't take this as dogma, but what I'm thinking is that those demons, they thought... Yeah, Jesus is going to destroy us one of these days. He'll destroy all the evildoers because we know God's righteousness. We know God's justice. We know God's laws. That's how we live. We live off God's laws. We operate off God's laws. We condemn people by God's laws. We survive by God's laws. That's how we survive. We know how it works. We've got a handle on God's righteousness. He's going to destroy. But I think God might have left himself vulnerable. Now, this is the foolishness. I think God might have left himself vulnerable. We can kill Jesus. And we can save ourselves our own doom. Let's put him to death. Yeah, let's slay him and then we'll become the kings forever. Let's kill the king of kings before he kills us. Not realizing, because God had hidden it all in a mystery, even from the principalities and powers in the Old Testament, they knew them as well, the scriptures. But no one knew, this is the thing, no one understood exactly what God was going to do. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, you think, well, what about Isaiah 53? I mean, isn't that obvious what God is going to do? The Ethiopian eunuch didn't think it was obvious. He said, who is this, the prophet or some other man? Who is this? They didn't know. Until you know Jesus, then he preached Jesus, and Jesus fits the role, right? But until Jesus died, until he rose again, even his disciples didn't know. But once he rose again, then he was proclaimed by Peter on the day of Pentecost. This is the fulfillment of the scriptures. But before, they didn't know. It was there, but it was in a riddle. And it was even kept hidden from the principalities. And so they said, well, we'll kill Jesus. Yeah, we'll kill him, and we'll be done with this. Maybe God left himself vulnerable. The Bible says God takes the crafty and their craftiness. He outsmarts those smart guys. What really happened was God did something so unexpected. Unexpected. Who would possibly die Give his only God wouldn't give his only begotten son for sinners. Who would do that? Who would show grace to rebels like us? We've infected the world. Who would show grace? And so this wisdom is God hiding this hidden purpose and then acting in mercy and acting in grace through his son for the helpless race as we sing in that song. He bled for Adam's helpless race because if the demons knew that, they wouldn't have put him to death. And if the Jewish Pharisees knew that, they wouldn't have put him to death. They almost needed to not know it to put him to death, to save man. And so now they know it well. It says that now they know the wisdom of God in the church. Whereas before they didn't. Now they know it all too well. And they realize that their wisdom actually was their doom. And that God's wisdom actually is their fall. The wisdom of grace That which is being shown to the principalities and powers by the church is the multiform wisdom of the mercy and grace of God. That which the powers thought unthinkably foolish is now revealed to be the most wise and wonderful attribute of God. It is God's grace that saves and transforms sinners to worship Him in humility. It is God's grace that brings God the greatest eternal glory and mankind's greatest eternal good. It's God's grace that dethrones and spoils the dark principalities of this world. It's God's grace that brings lasting peace and union between Jew and Gentile. It's God's grace that builds an eternal dwelling place for God to dwell with his people. The wisdom of the church, the wisdom of God laying his life down and doing the unthinkable, and now all of a sudden, there's peace between God and man There's peace between man and man. There's a dwelling place for God to dwell, and Satan is ousted because of it. When he sees the church, he knows he's done. But not because the church is something special, but because of that which is special in God that pertains to us. Every time they look at the church, what should they see? In verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Or some translations will say Freedom or freeness. And actually the word boldness there is actually a freeness of spirit. We have a freedom in our spirits and we have access to God and we have confidence by the faith of Him. What we see in the church is a bunch of sinners who are acting like a bunch of righteous people. (laughs) Bold as a lion, it says in the Bible. We have that freedom. We, we, We are sinful and yet we call God Father and we approach Him we pray to him and we worship him and we come to him freely because of Christ this is what God has for you if you believe in Jesus then you have boldness or freedom to access him with confidence through the faith of Christ because all of your sins don't keep you from him anymore and Satan may accuse you until he's blue in the face but who can condemn God's justified you so be encouraged that you have this And by believing this, and by approaching God in faith, you show off to the angels God's wisdom. And so Paul finally says in closing here, I'm the steward of this. God made me a steward of this. That's what it means in verse 2, and he says, the dispensation of the grace of God is really the stewardship. The stewardship of the grace of God, which is given to me for you, That which God gave me, that which he revealed to me, this mystery, this amazing thing that he's done throughout the ages, this plan, he's revealed it unto me, not that I can keep it to myself or think I'm something special, but so I can preach it to you and give it to you. And so that you can also receive that and experience God. So the progression of the secret is this. God has a secret. He reveals it to his apostles who reveal it to all and we reveal it to the principalities. And so whatever God has revealed to you, if God's revealed the gospel to you through man or whatever, through his scripture, by his spirit, whatever he's put into you as a stewardship, that isn't just for you to think you're something special, but for you to share it with others and to show off God's wisdom. So whatever God gives you as a gift, whatever it may be, if you draw a broader application, it's not just for you, but for everyone. It's for all. And so Paul breaks at verse 1, goes on a sidetrack till verse 12, and verse 13 finishes his point. He says, look, because of this mystery of the Gentiles, I'm a prisoner, but don't faint, verse 13. Don't feel bad for me. Because I'm in prison, don't feel bad for me. Don't be discouraged. I'm here for you. And I'm not discouraged about it. This is all part of God's plan. It's your glory as a matter of fact. See what is really going on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, just, just in closing, you might remember Paul said this about the apostles. He said, we are the stewards of the mysteries of God. And then a few verses down he says, man, God has made us apostles a spectacle to the world and to angels. We are persecuted and made fun of and ridiculed and all these things because of the mystery that has been given to them. But it's for your sakes that we experience all these tribulations and we rejoice in it. Let's pray.